Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. Today, we're exploring one venerable Ohio institution that stands as the oldest and largest military aviation museum in the world. More than a million visitors pass through its doors every year to marvel at the history contained within. They come to see famed aircraft, spanning from the early flyers of the Wright brothers to today's most advanced nuclear-armed supersonic bombers. They come to walk in the steps of former presidents as they step aboard retired Air Force Ones. They come to see the Apollo 15 command module, which once orbited the moon 74 times. They come to lay eyes on the one and only Memphis Belle. While she once helped defeat Nazi Germany, she now rests in glory, a testament to what we can achieve not only in aviation, but in the cause for freedom. The reasons so many of us visit this hallowed space are too numerous to count. With a current capacity of more than one million square feet, one can spend days perusing exhibits of monumental importance. All this, and admission, is free. What a jewel we have in this museum. All are welcome. All can come wonder at how learning to fly changed us as a people. It changed the way we traveled and the way we fought wars. It changed our perspective on the world, bringing faraway lands to within a day or two's journey among the clouds. I'm talking about the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. Many Ohioans have visited the National Museum more than once. With so much to see, it's no wonder so many visitors are repeat guests. Yet for a small number of people, including visitors, staff, and volunteers, some folks bear witness to strange and inexplicable experiences. It seems certain exhibits, about a half dozen, retain a kind of spiritual energy. Unexplained noises, moans, and whispers emanate from the still craft. Mysterious lights hover and sway. Once the busyness of crowds dies down at the museum's close each day, and the lights are turned low, night guards and cleaning crew are prone to catching glimpses of transparent figures, some seated in cockpits, others wandering the cavernous spaces. The claims of ghostly sightings are many. They span decades. Like most folk tales, these spirit stories carry deep emotional impact. They offer painful lessons and direction for our own life's journeys. Let's start our introduction to this monumental location by hearing from an expert in all things haunted in our great state. Since at least the early 90s, Chris Woodyard has held the title of one of Ohio's most beloved authors of ghost tales. Many of you undoubtedly devoured her five-volume series called Haunted Ohio. It remains the quintessential reference on ghostly Ohio lore. She was born and raised in the Columbus area, but now has lived in Dayton for many years. She's what you might call a sensitive, 
having had unexplained spiritual experiences throughout her life. How lucky for us that she decided to share them through her writings. You can check out all her works at hauntedohiobooks.com. Her enthusiasm for what may exist beyond the veil is deep and abiding. Luckily, she agreed to an interview for today's episode. Come, hear her story. I was so thrilled uh, to see your little excerpt on the uh, United States Air Force Museum there in Dayton. And if I understand right, you are a, a local to Dayton. Yes. Yeah. At mm-hmm. this point. Okay. Yep. So maybe that adds a little more significance to the location. Well, yeah, a little bit, although I never go there. <laughs> so I don't like it. It's not comfortable. <laughs> yeah, I think I had read that. Um, mm-hmm. So it really gives a difficult vibe for you there. Very much so. Um, mm-hmm. As uh, one woman, the one woman who took me through uh, when I did the first, I, I wrote it in Haunted Ohio too. I wrote a chapter on the ghosts at the Air Force Museum, and she said these are warbirds. Um, there's thousands of hands have passed through, you know, around these machines, or there's been deaths, or there's been injuries. It's got to leave a mark. So. Uh, it's it's a very uncomfortable place. Mm. Yeah, and even in comparison to the many locations you've been to, you would say. <clears throat> well, it's uh, it's the kind of place. I mean, there's a lot of places that make me uncomfortable. Uh, Collingwood Arts Center, the Ohio State Reformatory, those are sort of the tops of my terror list because mm. they make me so tired and uncomfortable. But um, <clears throat> I realize guests come and they want to go to the museum, you know, so. I would be game and I'd go along and then I'd come out and I would just be an absolute wreck for the next day or two. It was like I was just having the life sucked out of me. And I realized that was the problem. Uh, it was just extremely draining. Uh, so I, I won't go back. There's, there's no reason for me to go back. People can okay. go and enjoy it without me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I wonder, and this is kind of my own musings here, but um, if you think about the the reformatory, which, of course, was a prison for so many years, um, the kind of emotions that people have. Sure. um, And and also, you know, a lot of the the history and the tragedy attached to so many objects at the museum, I could understand how that could relate. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, The the worst place for me was near the POW exhibit. Mm. And uh, again, the woman who brought me in to walk through the place was, uh, I think, she said, I think the worst place is, and I stopped her and I said, let's see if I can feel it myself. You know, so I was walking around by myself and it was just awful. And I couldn't, it was like walking into sort of the air sickening. Um, very, very dire. And then I, I vaguely saw that this was a case about of exhibits and artifacts from POW camps. And it's like, ah, that's the spot. That's the problem. Okay. So that's that's one of the worst places. And then uh, the Lady Be Good exhibit also had a, a similar problem there. This was uh, the plane that crashed in the Libyan desert. Right. And uh, the men tried to walk out and, and failed and perished. Uh, there's some thought that they thought they were seeing water beneath them when they landed in the desert. They saw the dunes as water. 
So um, <clears throat> there's just a bit of the plane there, but it's when you walk up to it, it, it was like stepping over what I would call a circle of influence. You know, you've suddenly got into this area where you can feel something from the plane remnant, uh, the terror of the men's last moments or, or just the terror of, of crashing. Um, there's so much emotion attached to airplanes. Aviators get really attached to their planes. Even if something has been torn apart or pieced together, I know during the Second World War at least they would reuse bits of planes uh, in other planes to, to repair them. So you just wonder what was left over when that happened, you know, when it was put together. So um, with the Lady Be Good exhibit in particular, what you experienced was kind of a visceral sensation? Mm -hmm. Very visceral. It's It sometimes feels like being punched in the stomach. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it feels like electricity or running into a brick wall in the dark or having something fly out of the grass into your face unexpectedly. It's really startling. And you'd think I'd be used to it by now. <laughs> But I'm not. Um, I was scared of ghosts when I was a child, and I guess I sort of got into this as a form of aversion therapy. Uh, it hasn't worked. I'm still afraid of them, but I'm mostly retired from going out to places. Um, it's only by accident, you know, if I were, before COVID, if I were visiting a historic site or something, I might notice something. But uh, I've, I've retired from actually visiting people's homes or historic sites that when they've asked me to come in. Okay, because it's taxing? You it's saying? too draining. It's too draining. Mm -hmm. I have, I've had several friends say that their health improved after they stopped doing this work, and I can see why, because it's, well, you're pumping adrenaline, you're pumping cortisol, everything's on alert. Going back to the museum, you mentioned the, the Lady Be Good exhibits, mm -hmm. of course. Um, were there any other exhibits that stand out in your memory? Yeah, the Black um, Mariah, the helicopter that was in Vietnam, uh, uh -huh. painted dead flat black, and apparently she flew a lot of classified missions that we still don't know a lot about. But um, mm. the helicopter is there. You can see the bullet holes patched all over her. There's just hundreds of patches all over the skin, um, and sometimes you can see the pilot sitting in the seat. I wow. think he just, again, doesn't know he's dead. Mm -hmm. It's a very grim artifact, if you will. The helicopter is very dark. It's got a dark aura around it. It's darkness within, and it's just not someplace I would want to be around. Okay. It's a pretty negative energy. Mm -hmm. um, very negative Mm-hmm. And okay. as, as I say, we do not know what went on, although we do know that some people were ferried back, uh, you know, people who were injured were being ferried by this machine, so. Yeah, so they weren't able, as far as you know, um, they weren't able to identify the identity of this uh, pilot no. that's that seen. No, and, uh, and I was there with one of the historians from the uh, museum. So they said, no, a lot of this stuff is still classified, and it'll be classified for another 50 years or so. Oh, okay. So I, I don't know anything about how that works in terms of, you know, military classifications, but I guess they can keep things secret yeah. as long as they want to. 
I've had some uh, good fortune to connect with the former security officer ah. at the museum. Yes, he's now retired. Um, that he's confirmed a lot of similar things to what you've described, including the Lady Be Good exhibit mm-hmm. and the Black Mariah, among mm-hmm. some others. The boxcar. Um, boxcar, yeah, the little children seen playing. Mm-hmm. The little boy seen running around the base, and then other guards said that they would come around the corner into the mo- modern flight gallery, and there'd be a whole group of Asian children playing in the hall. Ugh. Terrifying. Okay. So sad. Oh, I know. To think. Uh, yeah, it, it's hard to fathom. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had also shared that sometimes, you know, he can see, he could see details um, of the apparitions, including the helmets, mm-hmm. details of the, the uniforms they'd be wearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other interesting thing that he shared, which I hadn't read anywhere else, was the Glenn Miller exhibit. Oh. Um, that it's known that it emanates uh, big band music. Oh, now that is new to me, too. I thought that was a bright spot of, you know, positive energy in the midst of... Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, so yeah there's not much uh, much happy, many happy ghosts there. Yeah. But uh, that's, that's interesting. I didn't realize that one. Hmm. Um, they used to be very, very cautious about telling people about ghosts over there. They were, I, I did a TV show locally and the PR lady had to follow us around and make sure we didn't say anything too awful and we're finishing up and up walks this immense man a guard in in uniform and he's armed he's like you're the ghost lady right and I said yeah he says well I want to tell you when I'm here by myself at night the intercoms come on by themselves and I go and lock myself in the office well the PR lady did not want to hear that (laughs) Oh, <laughs> I, I just spoiled the whole thing because she had just moments before said, oh, no, I don't think there's anything. There's no ghost here. There can't be. <laughs> I'm sure she, she has reasons for that and maybe, yeah. you know, shying away visitors or something. But Right. That was how they used to be. But it's been on, you know, some of the ghost hunting shows. They've, they've gotten a lot more publicity yeah. out of that. So. I think they'd more likely draw more people than, than shy them away, personally. But that's Yes, exactly. That's yeah. my thought. Um, do you have any guesses? Now, I know this is a stretch, kind of a, um, I don't know if it's a fair question, but um, any thoughts on what the lingering spirits, what their message might be or what their uh, dilemma might be that's, that's kept them in the, in the building? As uh, I think, as I said, you know, aviators do get very attached to their planes. And I could see some young aviator, you know, this is, he, was, he was young and he was killed. And this is the only place he had a good time. You know, this was, mm-hmm. this was a good place for him. So he's going to stay. Mm-hmm. He's choosing to stay. Um, I can also see people not realizing they're dead and, and just being stuck like the helicopter pilot saying, hey, if I just move the stick once more, I'll find my way back. Mm-hmm. Which I feel very sorry for ones that, you know, they're lost. Lost. It's a feeling most of us can relate to at some point in our lives. It's that feeling of disconnection and lonesomeness, one of the worst emotions any of us can go through. Whether you're a child wandering the aisles of a supermarket searching for a distracted parent, 
or whether you're a hiker who's lost a cell signal, weighing whether or not you've passed this tree before. Feeling lost starts with a moment of awful realization, followed by a sometimes desperate and forlorn effort to reconnect. This most painful of emotions sums up one of the saddest and most gripping tales connected to this museum. We're going to dive deep into a very real historical drama and examine its ties to ghostly sightings at the place. When I came across this particular account in my research, my heart sank on contemplating these young men's ultimate sacrifice for our country. As we approach Veterans Day on November 11th, let us remember the selfless efforts of countless men and women through the centuries who gave all they had to protect our way of life. As I mentioned earlier, I'd connected with the former security guard of the museum. While he declined an audio interview, not wanting the attention that might bring, he was quite eager to share details of his many unexplainable encounters during several years stationed there. Disembodied big band music would often waft from the Glenn Miller's exhibit, which contained many instruments, uniforms, and other objects from his days entertaining troops. Misty figures manifested around the boxcar's massive front tire. This B-29 bomber had dropped the second atomic bomb on Nagasaki, effectively ending the war. The POW exhibit was known for eerie sounds and heavy, gut-wrenching emotional impacts for unsuspecting visitors. The retired security guard explained that whenever he would approach a ghostly figure, they'd usually evaporate before he could get too close for a better inspection. However, he'll never forget a handful of occasions when he'd been lucky enough to catch a glimpse of a helmet, laced boots, and fatigues before the vision would disappear completely. Spotting a full-bodied apparition is often considered the holy grail of ghost hunters around the world. This gentleman said he'd seen them many times over. His time spent working at the museum changed him. It opened his mind to the world beyond our own. He is certain that something of who we are today lives on after our earthly demise. What struck me as even more intriguing, however, were his claims that full-bodied apparitions were most often spotted around the Lady Be Good exhibit. In fact, he'd seen them often enough to recognize when an apparition had wandered from the exhibit itself down a wide hall and into other areas of the museum altogether. Some number of this group of men, all of whom lost their lives in the Libyan desert, seemed to roam the halls and massive exhibit spaces of our treasured United States Air Force Museum. Assuming these manifestations must bring forth from some compelling story, wrought with unresolved throes of emotion, I decided to dig deep into what I could learn of the history. What I found there was more heart-wrenching than I could have imagined. It gave me a deeper appreciation for the selfless sacrifice these men made for the cause of freedom. Come, hear their heartbreaking story, as gathered from historical documents. The Lady Be Good 
was what's known as a B-24D Liberator, a lumbering tank of an aircraft which carried heavy payloads over Axis territory, working to pound the enemy into submission. Her eager crew of nine young men had been desperate to join the fight. They'd only just arrived in Libya in March 1943. Within a week, they'd been assigned their first and only combat mission to cross the Mediterranean as one of 28 bombers and pound the living daylights out of military targets in Naples, Italy. When the group took off from the Libyan base at 1.45 in the afternoon, they flew straight into a massive sandstorm. Lumbering slowly upwards, Lady Be Good would eventually rise above the weather, where visibility improved considerably. For a time, however, the crew thought they might end up fighting the mission alone. As many of her fellow bombers aborted mission when the blowing sand disabled their engines, rendering them powerless to fly above the storm. So many bombers had to limp their way back to base. Not Lady Be Good. She would fly on across the sea, along with only about six of the original squadron. But then, suddenly, when only 30 miles south of her target in Naples, she turned back. She had been the last of the six to do so. The weather had delayed them so much that the sun had set, blanketing the landscape beneath them in darkness. Without the accuracy of a visual target, First Lieutenant William Hatton elected to abort the mission, a decision which most certainly saved the lives of innocent Italian civilians. By 11.10 that evening, all but one of the bombers had returned safely, albeit mostly disabled, to the U.S. Army base in Libya. Lady Be Good never returned. She had made no distress call. As the hours slipped by, one after the other, all assumed she'd suffered trouble over water and crashed into the sea. She and her crew were listed MIA, assumed lost to the waves. For 15 years, the tale of what happened to her remained a mystery. The family members of her crew were left with no explanation of the final moments of their mission. And that's where the story would have remained yet today, if it weren't for the accidental discovery of the plane's wreckage by a British oil exploration team in November 1958. She'd been found 440 miles inland, far, far away from the deep recesses of the Mediterranean Sea. On this day, the stifling 135-degree heat rising from the desert sands, one group of explorers happened upon one of the most baffling World War II mysteries of that era. She'd been nearly perfectly preserved, with no indications of flak or machine gun damage. Only her fuselage had been broken off near the tail. It were as if the Lady Be Good had made a graceful belly landing, gliding along the sandy surface of the remote Libyan desert. There she had rested, undisturbed for 15 years. Inside, the crew's fleece-lined suits, worn at freezing high altitudes, hung neatly in rows. Water cans remained full. Coffee had been brewed and was still drinkable inside thermos jugs. 
All around the site, in all directions as far as the eye could see, was nothing but barren dunes, some towering 600 feet, blowing and shifting with the winds. There was no vegetation, no animals, nothing but nature at its barest. The discovery of the craft itself had only deepened the mystery of the fate of her young crew. Although the battery had been drained, the aircraft's radio was in perfect working order. A desert survival kit, along with many MRE rations, had been left untouched. The navigator's table offered a few tantalizing clues. An ashtray on top of it contained butts from cigarettes, fully smoked at the bottom. Yet near the top of the pile were many half-smoked cigarettes, reflecting the growing nervousness of a navigator, unsure of their location, believing the distant uniform surface below them weren't sand dunes, but the ebbs and flows of waves in an angry sea. It was assumed that once the Lady Begood began losing altitude due to exhausting her fuel, that the lot of them bailed out over what they expected to be the Mediterranean Sea. What surprise awaited them when their feet found the ancient sands of the Libyan desert? Their plane, now a ghostly image of itself without her crew, flew on alone before making an almost perfect belly landing in one of the most desolate regions on our planet. Immediately after discovering the wreckage in 1958, an exploration group commenced a search for the crew's human remains in desperate hopes of finding and bringing these servicemen home. For three months, search party after search party combed this thousand-square-mile section of the desert, known by locals as Cursed by Allah himself. Those souls lost there do not return. They are not found. A large number of the search party believed the same fate would come to the original nine-man crew. Perhaps they would forever remain where they had fallen. The first sign of their final resting places was revealed 18 miles north of the wreckage site. A civilian member of the search party discovered a pair of flying boots lying beside a barely discernible trail. This led the team to a half-dozen parachutes, indicating that the men had managed to gather together after bailing out. The small remnants of a trail led the team further north, where the dunes grew taller and into an even greater expanse of the unforgiving desert. Heartbreakingly, had the doomed crew headed south instead of north, they'd have only had one day's walk to arrive at Lady B. Good's largely intact carcass with her working radio and food and water rations. But having no way of knowing how far the plane had flown and in what direction, they decided to head north to what they believed would be the sea. They had no idea they were 400 miles into a barren and merciless desert. With no hats to shield them from the sun and half a canteen of water, they marched onward. Various search efforts would go on in the years to come in hopes of somehow coming across the crew's bodily remains. Remarkably, in February 1960, 
members of another British oil exploration team found the remains of five of the nine crew members. They were located a remarkable 85 miles north of the crash site. The remains were found grouped together, along with some small personal effects. Among those effects were diaries kept by co-pilot Lieutenant Robert Toner and flight engineer Harold Ripslinger. They detailed their desperate attempts at survival from April 5th through April 12th, 1943. They filled in details that could have been known no other way. These words are precious and tragic to read, but it puts us there with them, and it might shed light as to the tumultuous despair they surely confronted. Come here, Lieutenant Robert Toner's final words. Sunday, April 4th, 1943. Naples, 28 planes. Things pretty well mixed up. Got lost returning. Out of gas. Jumped. Landed in desert at 2 o'clock in the morning. No one badly hurt. Can't find John. All others present. Monday. Started walking northwest. Still no John. A few rations. Half a canteen of water. One cap full per day. Sun fairly warm. Good breeze from northwest. Night very cold. No sleep. Rested and walked. Tuesday. Rested at 11.30. Sun very warm. No breeze. Spent p.m. in hell. No planes, etc. Rested until 5 p.m. Walked and rested all night. 15 minutes on, 5 off. Wednesday. Same routine. Everyone getting weak. Can't get very far. Prayers all the time. Again, p.m. very warm. Hell. Can't sleep. Everyone sore from ground. Thursday. Hit sand dunes. Very miserable. Good wind, but continuous blowing of sand. Everyone now very weak. Thought Sam and Moore were all gone. Lamont's eyes are gone. Everyone else's eyes are bad. Still going northwest. Friday. Shelley, Rip, and Moore separate and try to go for help. Rest of us all very weak. Eyes bad. Not any travel. All want to die. Still very little water. Nights are about 35. Good north wind. No shelter. One parachute left. Saturday. Still having prayer meetings for help. No signs of anything. A couple of birds. Good wind from north. Really weak now. Can't walk. Pains all over. Still all want to die. Nights very cold. No sleep. Sunday. Still waiting for help. Still praying. Eyes bad. Lost all our weight. Aching all over. Could make it if we had water. Just enough left to put our tongue to. Have hope for help very soon. No rest. Still same place. Monday, April 12th, 1943. No help yet. Cold night. This was his final entry. With only half a canteen of water among them, 
they had set out in what would have been up to 130 degree heat in a futile attempt to find help. At one point, five of the eight reached exhaustion, leaving the remaining three to pursue onward through a haze of delirium and indescribable pain. In May 1960, the remains of one of those three men, Guy Shelley, were found another 21 miles north of the site where the five crewmen had been found. And only five days later, a search team would find another of the group of three. Flight engineer Harold Ripslinger had made it another 26 miles further north. He'd walked in total 132 miles from where he'd first landed, drinking practically no water along the way. The search efforts were again wrapped up at this point in late May 1960. Depressingly, two members' remains had not been found. And interestingly enough, these two crewmen had been the only ones to hail from the great state of Ohio. In special tribute to their lives and tragic deaths, I'm presenting their stories here. Second Lieutenant John S. Warvaka was the crew's 24-year-old bombardier from Cleveland. He was a graduate of John Adams High School and had worked as a riveter with the Champion Rivet Company before enlisting in the Army Air Corps. He was the one crew member who did not rendezvous with the others when the wreck occurred. His remains would be discovered 16 miles northwest of the wreckage site in August 1960 by another British oil team. The configuration of the parachute found along with him suggested that it did not open properly on his descent. He died instantly on impacting the ground. His canteen was still three-quarters of the way full with pristine, bacteria-free water. His fellow crew members, all of whom survived the initial bailout, would come to gather only a half-mile to the southwest of where Warvaka's remains were eventually discovered. It seems his faulty parachute ended up saving him the torturous and slow deaths of his colleagues. His remains were flown to Frankfurt, Germany, where an army mortician positively identified the corpse as that belonging to Lieutenant Warvaka. When reporters from the Cleveland Plain Dealer first learned of the discovery, they found Lieutenant Warvaka's brother, Alex Warvaka, and informed him of the positive identification. Although the family had held out hope that he would one day return, after 17 years of being missing in action, his family expressed relief that they were finally bringing him home. The remains of the other crew member, Staff Sergeant Vernon Moore, are officially still missing. This 20-year-old air gunner was the only member whose remains could not formally be identified. However, a historical review of British Army records dating to 1953 showed that a patrol unit came upon unidentifiable human remains directly proximate to where the last two members would be identified much later. 1953 was five years before the Lady Be Good wreckage itself had even been found. Assuming the corpse they discovered belonged to some wayfaring local lost to the desert sands, the army unit buried it, documented their finding, 
and one about their business. An investigation of the incident was reopened in 2001 and concluded that the size of the skeletal remains matched that of Sergeant Moore, the young man who hailed from New Boston, Ohio, on the Ohio River. He'd been one of the three crew members who'd hiked the farthest after the first five fell victim to the worst nature could give. If you go to visit the museum for yourself, and I sincerely hope you do, you'll find the exhibit dedicated to the men who so tragically lost their young lives on this, their first combat mission. After the wreck was discovered, numerous parts from the Lady Be Good were returned to the U.S. for technical study. In addition, some parts were installed in other aircraft. Coincidentally, some of those craft suffered difficulties, including the crash of an Army Otter airplane, which took the lives of all ten men aboard. The exhibit at Dayton's United States Air Force Museum contains original parts of the plane, including a wheel from its landing gear, a propeller, a helmet, and an unused canteen. Also included are many photos and other documents of the wreck's original discovery and the exhaustive search to find the missing crew members and bring them home. We're drawn to the sprawling museum for many reasons. Lots of people go to see military aviation at its best, to witness the progression in technology through the decades, and to marvel at what we've accomplished in learning to harness the wind. Many come to pay tribute to the countless men and women who lost their lives in those efforts, whether in the early stages of building and designing the first aircraft, or those who died in combat efforts while our country was at war. A growing number of visitors come after hearing rumors of otherworldly happenings at the place. Ghost tourism is a kind of industry that's been growing steadily since the advent of paranormal reality shows. While I'm sure a certain number of people come to the museum for this reason, I hope that once they get there, they find another, perhaps even deeper purpose for going. Whether or not ghost-loving visitors find spirits among these moving exhibits, I hope they discover the power of the stories behind them. If we're to believe that spirits we call ghosts are souls lost between worlds, then perhaps a tragedy such as the wreckage of the Lady Be Good exemplifies what it means to be lost. Separated from the rest of humanity, in an unforgiving climate, these men didn't give up. They went on searching, trying to reconnect with the rest of us. Their ultimate inability to do so shouldn't overshadow the very human strength it took to keep trying until their bodies wore out. In contemplating this heart-wrenching tale, I've come to recognize that we're all working to stay connected. It's what allows us to survive. In these divisive times, it's worth remembering that if we allow rifts to develop between us and others, if we separate ourselves from the wider community, we all risk a very painful, grueling end. We must keep courage, keep fighting against the odds and press onward, seeking genuine connection with others. Perhaps someday, the spirits rumored to be those of these valiant crew members of the Lady Be Good 
will find the connection they've been searching for. Perhaps by honoring their sacrifice, we can show that they've not been forgotten, that their young lives, full of devotion to a cause larger than themselves, still serves as an example for us all. God bless our veterans and active duty military of the past, present, and future. This concludes today's episode on the United States Air Force Museum in Dayton, Ohio. I hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Ohio Folklore on your chosen podcast platform. You can find Ohio Folklore at ohiofolklore.com and on Facebook. If you'd like to help others find the show, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts. And as always, keep wondering.